The 3CR Gardening Show is coming to you today from the Woi Wurrung Nation. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people as the traditional owners of this land. We recognise the practices of care and cultivation of the land and waters by the First Peoples and pay our respects to their elders past and present. Wherever you are and wherever you garden, we encourage you to know whose land you're on. Good morning, good morning and welcome to The Gardening Show. It is Sunday morning and apologies for that little glitch. My name is A.B. Bishop and uh, we've got a lovely show with you this morning. We have got Stephen Wells who is a Healthcare Gardens Consult Coordinator and Horticultural Therapist and Meryl Johnson from Seedscapes. Good morning guys. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. How are you all? Uh, very, very well. And sorry about that. I had the um, I had the microphones turned down. That is quite alright. <laughs> oh my goodness! Do you think I would know by now, wouldn't you? Well, we wanted to wake people up gently. You know, That's we right. didn't want to yes. bounce into their ears. That's absolutely <laughs> right. Yes, yes. Uh, how is everybody? Very good. Very yes, good, for you. a Sunday morning, we're all looking quite uh, chipper, actually. Well, it's been a beautiful autumn, I have to say. It's The colours have been fantastic this autumn in all the deciduous plants and it's been a a mild autumn. It's gone on for a very long time. It has, yes. Sometimes the colour comes, you get a big storm and it's gone in two days but it's really gone for weeks. I reckon about four to five weeks at our place, which is remarkable. Where are you, Meryl? We're just north of Warrigal and Druin in Mm -hmm. West Gippsland, near Noogee. Lots of people know Noogee, the Mm -hmm. old... Timbertown, and on the road to Mount Borbore to the snow. So we can actually see the snow out of our front garden. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So it's already going, already ramping up? Yeah, they had a big snowfall last week, but it's probably melted away now because it's been quite mild temperatures. But when we had that cold snap, yes, I had about 25 centimetres of snow, so we could really see it. Wow. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. And I wonder if that plays into the colour, the autumn colour. I think that, so, that yes, those, those cold snaps. And we did have a few cold nights there. So been an exceptional autumn for deciduous colour. It's wonderful because one of the things I absolutely love autumn. I do too. But it's also that moment of going, why does it not last as long as I like it to? <laughs> <laughs> because the colours are just sensational. And I think, you know, I love a lush green garden. And that's so do my I. Basis. Um, but when there's the pop of colour. Oh, Yes. There's something about it for me that I go, I don't have many autumnal changing plants in my garden, but I have a few. And when they do it, I'm like, it's happening. It's now. It's now. Can (laughs) you last for a while, please? And if you can get the light behind it, it just glows. And we're lucky enough to to have in our garden a great flock of uh, king parrots, the beautiful green and red gentlemen. The ladies are a little... Less bright, but they have great personality. Yeah, yeah, definitely. (laughs) But they are sensational birds, so intelligent. And because we're out and about in the garden all the time, they get used to us and and they know us. They obviously recognise 
people. They know yep. we're friendly. And they'll come right down onto the lower branches and sort of hang upside down and do acrobatics and talk to you. They're, they're just endlessly entertaining. I think they are one of the parrots which are less frightened of people. We have them in our garden and... Out of all of the parrots, that, I mean, the cockies, of course, are quite friendly, etc. but the king parrots will come and sit on your head and it's, I mean, we're in the bush, so it's not like yes. you're in a built-up area where there's lots of people feeding them and interacting with them, but yep. they just seem so unafraid and yes. they always come down and say good day. They're very curious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, what do they come for in your garden? Uh, well, I think they they like the cover and the shelter. Mm-hmm. We're very close to the bush, but we do have, you know, fields, farmland immediately surrounding us. And I think they find our really sheltered because we've got lots of mature trees and yep. a lot of shelter and cover. So we really get birds from, from the big white and black cockies, the yellow-tailed black cockies are our local residents as well, all the way down to the little fairy wrens, which are, oh, oh they're man, just so gorgeous. <laughs> I love all the other ones, but one thing, if I could get birds in my more birds in my garden, it would be the wrens. The wrens. Yes, yeah, just they, they really love shelter. They've got yeah. to have safe places to be because they're so little and they just bob about in the open, you know, sort of foraging. Uh, so they're, oh, they're very exposed, yeah. Have you seen them in your area, Stephen? No, not. I mean, you're in Montmorency, so. Yeah, so I think I'm probably a little bit too built up. Okay. Um, Obviously, I've got um, a lot of trees around, um, a lot of gum trees around. um, So we get all the mid to larger size birds. Mm -hmm. um, But I don't see a lot of the little ones. Mm. Too domesticated and too many other things around. To scare them. Noises, pets, you know, all those kind of aspects. Yeah, it's in. um, Would impact them. Seeking that, um, because you know there's, and obviously as you said, they like the the, the particular bushes that are they can be protected in. Yeah, really um, dense and preferably prickly. <laughs> yeah, where I probably do see them at times might be along the walk along the riverbank. Mm-hmm. Yes, they do like. How the far water. from? How far are you from the river? Ah, uh, probably about five to six hundred metres. Oh, not far at all. That surprises me that they haven't made the jump oh, to your I want garden. A bit, bit of a busy area, so yes. Yeah. There's a lot of traffic around too, which yeah. is so they're probably more happy in that more protected space where there's the occasional human being but um, not a lot of built up noise traffic interaction. Now, I haven't been to your garden personally, but I have seen it a lot. You've, you're on Instagram, Stephen Wells the Gardener. Is That's that, the one. Correct? Yep. Yeah. And uh, you've got a fabulous, fabulous garden. It's like every nook and cranny of your space is some, it's just so artistic. It's like the whole garden is really an art piece. What sort of plants do you have in there? Um, really... Um, What's the best way to describe it? It's an eclectic garden with <laughs> different things that I either prefer or have worked out that survive for what I want out of them, mm-hmm. if that's a good – because I'm – so my place is a uh, – I'm in a unit complex, two-bedroom unit. The garden is actually bigger than the um, <laughs> unit space, which I'm very fortunate about. It's the 1970s sort of style I think that's about the right way around, yeah, isn't absolutely. it? absolutely. <laughs> feel very, very fortunate yeah. to be there. So plant-wise – I've had to, while I haven't got houses immediately around me, that's changing soon. Um, so I'm fortunate that I've got a little bit of space, but I'm still choosing plants on my boundaries 
for privacy. So I've got some a couple of gums that are are there and probably what I wouldn't plant if I was to put a plant in now, but you know, as in the beautiful but forty odd metre spotted gums, probably not the, the best thing in that sort of area. Yeah. However, it's it's a lovely tree. So but underneath it I've got things like um, some uh, slender weaver bamboos for privacy and mm-hmm. that lush green look. I've got some ornamental pears, but I've also got some other things in there that are um, little, what I would probably describe as, oh, I'd like that plant. Where do I have a spot for <laughs> okay, it? Okay. Or oh, can I find a spot for it? That's the most common and, and the best reason to have a plant because so, you just love it. I've got some salvias, um, some bromeliads, uh, a butylon, um, a lot of succulents in pots. Mm-hmm. I do tend to like to uh, move things around at different times in the creative mm-hmm. flow. Mm-hmm. So I kind of move spaces around or I like to change pots. Um, so I have a lot of plants, uh, predominantly succulents yep. um, and some cacti as well. So a bit of an eclectic mix. Um, but in there a mix there's some Dianellas, mm-hmm. Clivias, Sorry, I'm just visualising my garden as I go walk around <laughs> in my head um, to describe. But, uh, yeah, and some little mixtures of um, other plants in there as well. Yeah. Um, some good old, you know, tough, hardy yeah. plants. Yes. I've got uh, some narrow um, walkway down one side of the house and I've created a, um, a walled planter that's got things like the uh, foxtail fern, the asparagus, I mean, that's not a fern, um, agaves, the old traditional spider plant that yep. in some situations can be a weed yep. but um, or weedy potential. But in where I've got them, I manage them very easily and, and contain them. So yeah, um, that's why, yeah, mixtures of plants. Mixtures of plants. So do you have any spots in the garden which get hammered in summer with the sun and then zero sun in winter? Um, a couple of little spots, yeah. So I get, like for a good example, there is a, a pocket of space that gets good summer sun and I used to have veggies there and a little some little raised garden beds and some that progressed on to having them to be perennials because mm-hmm. mm. I went no done the veggies um well not done them they were very token summer oriented because then come winter there's no sun on them the, the shadow yep. of the, the house yeah means there's actually no sun on the, the spot mm-hmm. um so that did impact which is a good thing to you know the other thing I love talking about that about is Gardens change. Yes, they do. We change in our preference and our interest of plants in the garden sometimes. And so I think that's actually to be embraced rather than, oh, no, you can't pull that plant out or you can't change. You go, no, no, time A garden change. should never be finished because it is a creative, artistic or joyous adventure. And it's got to be an adventure. You know, you have to try things. You think, oh, it won't grow here, but I'm going to give it a go anyway. Yes, I <laughs> and, love that description. That's very, very And spot on. sometimes it does actually love you and it will grow <laughs> or it'll put itself where it, it finds a, yep. a handy spot or you only have it for one season. What the hell? It was, it was magnificent and beautiful and it certainly lived longer than a bunch of cut flowers. So. I've actually planted some or had bought some pots of perennials and gone, had the moment of going, oh, it's in flower, I'll get it. Enjoyed it in the pot and then going, well, actually, I might just buy another one next year rather than, like, I've left it in its pot, put it in a spot outside a window where I can sit and enjoy it and go, oh, I can see you, you're flowering. Wonderful. Keep doing that. Oh, and there's blue banded bees on it too. Even yes. better. Yeah, and then right. come and go, well, if you come back next year, that's great. But if not, I'll just buy another one. Yes, yeah. 
So, yes, I agree with that, Meryl. It's got a gardening's got to be an adventure. It's got to be fun. It's 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 the best fun in the world. It absolutely is. My problem is I I have these visualizations of what I want sort of particular areas to be, and then I start planting it out, and then three months later I forget what I was intending on doing with that area, <laughs> and it sort of changes again. But uh, slowly getting there with my garden, yeah. um, it's, it's slowly taking shape. Uh, eventually, it's it's been such a long process, but it's being shaped, and it's an ongoing process. It, so it's not, uh, yeah, as Meryl said, it's not a final. No, they're never finished. I know, but isn't it um, a little bit frustrating because, of course, where I am – well, not of course, but where I am, I'm in the bush and I plant mostly Indigenous plants Mm. and – in part to support the local wildlife. And then, of course, you support the work, local wildlife and they come and eat them. So, yes. Oh, that's kind of disappointing and yeah. exciting at the same time. Some plants take so much longer to establish because we have... Yeah, getting a, chewed a, down. Yeah, a resident wallaby and we've got the wombat that decides that she yeah. likes particular grasses. And uh, so there's always something getting eaten. It's always a challenge. Yes, it is so, always a challenge. And, I mean, there's increasing... Nasty challenges, certainly in our area. The deer are becoming plague proportions. Actually, driving down to Melbourne yesterday, just outside of Pakenham, on the M1 freeway, was a stonking big dead deer that somebody had hit. I mean, to have them right down there in the open, virtually suburban area was, you know, really very frightening. But driving through the bush in our area now, nobody does it at you know, dawn or or twilight because there's just so many deer. I mean, that's the immediate impact for humans, but the impact on the bush we can just see in spades and bucketfuls because they are destroying trees, they're destroying creek habitats, they're, Mm. they're just changing the whole ecology of that bushland and they're very difficult to get at because... You know, they can't cull them from the air. The bush is too dense. It's got to be on foot. And and they're so elusive. It's They're just breeding into plague proportions. We're lucky um, in that our garden is not attacked by rabbits, uh, but that's only because we've got such a healthy fox population. Okay. <laughs> we've got the most yeah. handsome foxes in the world, I think, because they're so well fed on, on the population of rabbits. I mean, you kind of don't mind sharing with a wallaby and a wombat. You accept that, you know, you have to work together. You've got to work together. But I refuse to work with deer and rabbits. I think they're just disgusting. And on our um, Seeds website, we've actually now started listing the deer and rabbit resistance of each plant. There's some, some plants that deer and rabbits... They don't prefer to eat, let me put it that way, because no plant is completely resistant. Well, there are a few, but no plant is completely immune if they're starving to death and in plague proportions. But they're unlikely to be starving to death except in, uh, you know, really, really difficult years. So lots of plants do have a resistance in that they will leave those alone while they go and eat the lettuces. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. uh, We have to come back to some of the plants that you think and and I 100% agree. I mean, it is a massive... Uh, problem the deer and I saw two this morning it's very rare that I drive anywhere without seeing 
at least one, but usually it's two, three, up to five, sometimes seven. Yeah. And uh, th- as you say, they're, they're wreaking havoc on the bush. And there's a uh, Nilambic Council, we've got a culling program going on at the moment. And Thank so, goodness. Hooray. More know, but strength to them. It's such a big process because you think you're out in the middle of the bush. I don't know how much deer weigh, obviously quite a lot. Mm. Um, you kill a deer, what do you do with it? Do you drag it through the bush? It's a massive process, so they yeah. can yes. only take a certain amount per night. That they can actually get out. Yeah, yes. it's just, um, it would just be amazing if all councils sort of got on board and just had this continuous culling program and processes were to. put in place to, uh, to make the process a bit easier for the people actually doing the culling. We've, we've really got to, I think, put creative thinking onto this problem because, well, a lot of the deer around our area, by uh, anecdotal evidence, when the deer farming was such a huge industry, you know, potential start-up industry in the 80s, early 90s, there was a lot of deer farms and mm. then either you know, some escape naturally, but apparently some were just let free because, you know, the bottom fell out of the industry and they really mm. couldn't afford to take them away to have them slaughtered or whatever. They they just were let run free. And the deer farmers tell me that every, you know, couple of years that deer population doubles. So it's it's yeah. a massive problem a that we really thought. need to get, get on to. And it's coming, you know, it is on the edges of um, metropolitan. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not. Or they're not out in the forests only. Like this. so, it is a, a an increasing problem for um, suburban, suburban areas. areas. Yeah. Well, as well. I, and the two I saw this morning were in Warrandyte. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, sure, there, there's bushland there, but it's pretty built up as well. Yeah. yeah. I always feel sorry for for the people whose gardens are in like, oh, my goodness, you're going to wake up, your garden's going to have been trashed. Yes. Yeah. So what are some of the plants that you think um, are sort of… Uh, More immune to yes, them, yes. less, less deer-friendly. One really safe and sure method of identifying it, you know, short of looking it up on the website if you just want to think about it randomly while you're in the nursery… Um, anything that's got a lot of essential oils in it that are quite strong scented and strong flavoured, okay. they yep. will tend to leave to the bottom of the eating menu. Um, so, in particular, salvias mm-hmm. are uh, last to be picked off. Um, even think even wallabies and rabbits don't like salvias. No, and, okay. and so yep. it's anything that's got a high content of uh, essential oils in it that are very aromatic and and strongly flavoured. So, yes, the salvias are a very large family that most of them have a pretty high oil content, so they're not going to favour those. Lavenders are another good case in point. Uh, Agustache, because they are high in aromatic oil contents. And... I don't know who tells them, but they do actually know the plants that are poisonous, so they won't eat digitalis. Mm. Just like apparently, I haven't got evidence myself of of this, um, but specialist clematis growers tell me that possums won't eat clematis because they don't like the taste. Don't, you know, don't quote me on that, but that's what I've been told. So they're 
But animals, wild animals, seem to know the things that are poisonous. So they're not going to eat aconites. Not, they don't yep. like the, the aconites mm-hmm. because there's, there is a very poisonous content to them. They don't chew halibors for the same reason. They don't chew digitalis, foxgloves, because of the, the chemical compounds. So they've probably got much better sniffers than us and they can actually smell that this is not a good thing to eat. But on the other hand, they adore hostas and lettuces. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's, um, and, and they can just so quickly wipe out an entire garden, can't they? Oh, yes, just, because they usually yeah. move in herds. It's unlikely to be a lone one. So if they've picked on that area that night, they'll devastate that area. <laughs> so either they pass the information on or there's the, um, what was the old old school? There was someone that tested the the. The royal's food or the, the noble person's food. Ah, oh, yes. <laughs> they tested it at first and if yes. they were alive... Then they, it was right, okay for the taste, king to eat. <laughs> so there's someone in the, um, in the herds like the... The taste the, tester. The taste. <laughs> Your job tonight, right, yeah. come on. <laughs> Sounds terrifying. Uh, look, I should get to... There's a few community announcements. Uh, so this is the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's A.B. Bishop and I'm in the studio with Meryl Johnson and Stephen Wells. Uh, so we only have a few uh, community announcements this morning. The first one is uh, the Friends of Geelong Botanic Gardens tours. So they uh, link up with Botanica Travel and um, they've got a presentation on the tours that are coming up through Botanica. So I thought that, that could be quite interesting to go along to. So this is on Wednesday the 7th of June at... 12 to 1 in the large meeting room at the rear of Geelong Botanic Gardens. Carly will be presenting on the Friends tour to to Lord Howe Island on the 30th of October and the tour to New Zealand on 14th of February next year. And you can RSVP to the Friends office. Uh, So the Friends have negotiated some very special opportunities to travel together in a group of about 15 to 25 people to two amazing destinations. All tours are fully escorted with experienced Botanica guides and the tours have been designed for Friends of the Botanic Gardens and promise to be popular with those who would love a horticultural-based tour with like-minded people. Botanica organises everything, including assistance and liaison of airfares. Um, So if you just want to sort of get a sense for what the tours might contain, you could go along to that presentation. I think that would be um, fun to do and get a bit of an understanding of the gardens that you're going to be visiting and what sort of happens day to day. Now, every year the Friends of Geelong Botanic Gardens also have a winter lecture series and it's always quite interesting. So this series is, um, there's three different presentations. They're online and it's $15 for all three lectures and they start on Thursday the 15th of June and the first talk is called Norman Houghton Otway Hotels and Shanties and uh, that's all the information that's available on that one, sorry. And on 6th of July, Liz Bonetto has got the Wadawurrung Connection and the Wadawurrung Connection is the name of a current project in Geelong Botanic Gardens 
they have received a First Nations Cultural Heritage Grant, which enables them to enhance community awareness of the Wadawurrung culture through plantings, signage and celebration. And Liz has been planning with the Wadawurrung traditional owners for some years to develop this project, which will soon become a reality. So you can hear all the details of that. Um, yeah, so Geelong Botanic Gardens has had a long-standing connection with Geelong's first people. Our first curator, Daniel Burns, had travelled widely and was a strong defender of the first Australians respecting their skills and culture. He learned about their plant use and introduced Australian plants to early Botanic Gardens across Australia. His friend, Willem Bar Nip, King Billy, was one of the last of the Wadawurrung in Geelong. So the presentation will look at the story of the Wadawurrung, their use of plants and their care of country, which would no doesn't no that be sound interesting. interesting? Absolutely, yes. Um, and then on the 20th of July, Stephen Ryan and Craig Lidgerwood will be presenting on gardens of northwest France, which I'm pretty sure they are at the moment, or they were in Spain yes. last I, I saw. Um, been following Stephen on Instagram and, uh, yeah, getting updates on all the amazing places they're off to. Um, the Friends of Burnley Gardens... They've got a winter propagation workshop with Sasha Andrusiak on Saturday the 1st of July. Sasha completed her graduate and postgraduate studies in horticulture and climate change at the Burnley campus and has held many roles on campus over the last 22 years. Propagation is a big passion of hers and she loves to share her skills in this area. The workshop will commence with a discussion followed by morning tea, then a walk around the gardens to collect cuttings to use for propagation back at the nursery. Uh, You will propagate hardwood cuttings such as roses, fruit trees, forsythia, juniper, viburnum, lilac and others. You'll learn various techniques to propagate indoor plants. We will use the glasshouses at Burnley to produce the best outcomes for your plants, which you can pick up when they're ready. That's very handy. You can um, leave them there so they don't die straight away. Um, So that's Saturday the 1st of July from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Morning tea is provided. It's $35 for members and $45 for non-members. Please wear closed shoes, which is a health and safety requirement, and it's at Burnley Nursery in um, 500 Yarra Boulevard in Richmond, and parking, there's usually heaps of parking on Yarra Boulevard, and the workshop is limited to 20 participants, so um, they've got a few things um, coming up through winter, so that's the um, Friends of Burnley Gardens Winter Propagation Workshop, and amazingly, that's all the community announcements that we have so I should invite um, listeners we've got a couple of questions that have already come in but if you would like to ring in you can call us on 94190155 or you can text us on 0488809855 or during the week if you feel like it you can email us on 3cr so that's the numeral 3cr dot gardening at gmail.com and of course we're also on the socials uh, 3cr gardening show on yeah facebook and instagram which liz looks after very nicely for us so i should get to a couple of questions that um 
they were already on the screen when I came in this morning. So goodness me, people are up early and ready to go. So first of all, this is from Charlotte. She says, good morning. I'm a regular podcast listener and really enjoy your gardening show. My question is about the old homesteads and designed gardens in Victoria. I have learned through your show that nothing has an overlay, a protection of those gardens of significance. So what can new owners do if they end up owning such a design such as Gilfoil, are there people who deal with that era that can come and help out with the master plan? Sometimes those broad brush strokes and true to original designer must be hard to see and follow in a garden that might have had many owners or wanting to put a stamp on it. Yes. Um, yes, there's, of course, the Australian Garden History Society. Um, yes. They did a lot of work over many decades um, finding original documentation and recording those gardens, doing doing research. And I would imagine that the Botanic Gardens organisation would also be quite helpful because of uh, Victoria having so many old historic botanic gardens that were established during the, the gold era. So I, I would think that the Australian Garden History Society and the Botanic Gardens, the, Mel the Royal Melbourne Botanic Gardens, as well as those caring for the regional Botanic Gardens would be a great place to start, as well as the local historical societies, which yes. are often really terrific at preserving that stuff. Um, by the way, speaking of Botanic Gardens and, and Friends Groups, I'd really like to give a shout out to the, the Friends of the Geelong Botanic Gardens, mm -hmm. who've been so active and... and just so wonderful over many years and to encourage anyone who hasn't been to see the Geelong Botanic Garden to go at once because they're <laughs> fabulous. You know, do, do a day trip. It's re they're really beautiful and uh, so interesting. We're actually helping the uh, both the friends and the staff of the Geelong Botanic Gardens at the moment with seed because they're planning to plant a big new shade border uh, which I think is fascinating to see the range of plants that will do really well in, in quite a shaded and a dry and, you know, fairly torrid yep. um, climate for plants. But there's a huge range. So that's a project that we're mulling over at the moment to supply seed for some very interesting plants for them to uh, put into that area. But do go and see the Geelong Botanic Gardens and big shout out to the friends who are very long standing. They've been such an active group for a very long time and volunteers and friends of gardens everywhere. Good job, you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What are some of the plants that you're putting into that shady border? Well, think Thinking about it at the moment, I've had the request to, you know, think out some, some really unusual things. So one of the first I'm going to suggest is some asarum. I love asarum. They're, they're a low ground cover, which are excellent for putting underneath trees and shrubs. It can be evergreen or deciduous trees and shrubs. And they form a, a very thick carpet of leaves and a thick carpet of rhizomes. So yeah. they're good, very good weed suppressors. They, <laughs> their blooms are what you call interesting rather than 
beautiful. Oh, yeah. Oh, so are they? Are these the wild gingers? Yes, yes exactly. Okay. Wild gingers, Beautiful. exactly. And the reason they're called wild gingers is because the, the roots smell like ginger. So, again, something that critters won't eat mm-hmm. because they don't like that, that ginger flavour. Um, but the foliage is lovely. It's thick, carpeting, glossy beautifully shaped leaves, lovely textured leaves, and some of them even have really quite interesting leaf markings with silver markings and black patterning, etc., on the leaves. So it's a lacy sort of pattern of foliage and texture and colour texture. But then they bloom quite early in the season. And as I say, the flowers are what you call interesting rather than beautiful. They're spidery. That sounds rather intriguing. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're spidery. They've got on the end of each petal a very long tendril and their most unusual colours, brown, dark burgundy, russet, wow. black, and with mealy throats. Do you know what I mean? It looks like someone's chucked a handful of flour down their, their throats. They're, they're covered in this farina. Uh, mealy flower and yeah they're bizarre flowers but very beautiful they're often underneath the foliage so it's not that they're very showy but the foliage is enough even you know Mm -hmm. but the flowers are there as well They're, they're really beautiful plants and they're so hardy in even deep shade so they're top of my list to recommend to the Geelong Botanic Gardens for their new shady border. Are they a plant which you'd have to control? They would sort of creep their way and take over the whole bed? No, they do spread. Mm-hmm. They are a ground cover and very dense, but they're not fast mm-hmm. and they're not difficult. If, if it went somewhere that you didn't want it, it's only, you know, a spade's work to, to get yep. rid of it. They're, they're compact in their their rhizomes, so it's it's not like they're going to invade and take over. Easy to control, put it that way. How big is the border that they're planting up? I don't know that yet. I haven't been told. I'm just this is just initial communications with the uh, the friends of the Geelong Botanic Gardens to start work on this project. Fantastic! Oh, that's exciting, and I'm sure you'd have lots of unusual plants for them. Yes, yeah, well, that, yeah. that's what we're really trying to specialise in is um, unusual plants that you can grow from seed but you certainly won't find in the normal nurseries as well as some, just as a, a happy sideline, we also have re- some really lovely annuals that are quick fire, you know, if you want yep. a little bit of colour and you want to have some fun or you're growing, you know, for for cut flowers, for vases. And actually the other thing that I'm finding really interesting in in our dealings with with people who like to purchase seeds is how very many micro flower farms there are springing up. Yeah. There's something that Stephen and I were chatting about before we went on air, how COVID has changed so many things, mm. including people's career directions. And we're actually finding that a lot of people are now starting little mini flower farms, not on a huge industrial scale, on a very personal scale. And some of them are just in, you know, pretty ordinary backyards. 
And and they're doing the low carbon miles because they do wedding bouquets, they do, yep. you know, uh, uh, floral arrangements for local events and it's pick up at the farm or, or the garden gate or they deliver around the, their local area on on certain days, you know, might be Friday afternoon ready for the, the Saturday weddings. So it's a very local industry and I think, yes, what a wonderful – there's, you know, a few really good things that came out of COVID but the mini flower farms are definitely one of them and it's giving so much much pleasure. It's giving a living. It's an at-home living, and it, it's a local industry. It's great. Yep. So you have a few near you. I, I, yes, we do actually. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, we do. But the, we send seed all over Australia. So yes, it, it really is. It's not just a local phenomena. They're they're all over Australia. Yeah. So you used to have country farm perennials. Yes. Which was a nursery. Yes. Uh, retail nursery and um, you've now just you've shut that and you've focused completely on seeds on the seeds yes it was another effect of COVID you know it was what we were talking about Um, we were going gangbusters at the beginning of COVID and and I really have to give great credit to our staff who just wonderful we've we've got staff who are up to their third round of long service oh my goodness. <laughs> that's, a, that's great they are just the most wonderful local people and they really swung into it when covid came because we had to go entirely mail order um you know for obvious quarantine reasons um, and and we were going gangbusters because people were staying home and and people really got into gardening during during lockdowns, um, but then the delivery systems broke down, and we ended up having to personally deliver throughout Victoria, and organising a fleet of couriers to deliver interstate. Um, and it really became just too much. So we we decided we you know, concentrate on the seeds, which really don't mind if the post is a bit slow getting there. Yes. Yeah, no, that's very true. <laughs> and had you done seeds uh, simultaneously with the nursery? Yeah, the seeds were just – it's a little bit of a sad story how we, we got the seeds because um, it was my sister's enterprise. She started Seedscape and she'd just begun uh, sort of with a with a view of it being – a, a fairly low intensity, low workload, you know, because it's, they're very light to lift, unlike big trays of plants. Yes. <laughs> and so she'd started that as a sort of retirement thing and then she very suddenly, tragically died of a brain hemorrhage, unexpectedly. And uh, so we had all this, she had all this seed left over and her husband, of course, her um, widower was just bereft. So we took over that business as a family thing and we just kept it bubbling along on the back burner uh, for his sake whilst we were doing all the the mail order perennials and then we thought hang on this is a really good idea and uh, since we couldn't deliver the plants anymore we thought right let's give the seeds a, a good crack and so that's what we've done it's been the best fun we love it because you're in communication with gardeners who are interested in unusual things and mm-hmm. having a go at something and embarking on the adventure, which is what gardening's all about. And they're great communicators. You know, we have lots of little email chats and we all talk about our triumphs and tragedies. <laughs> it's a great community. Seed, seed raisers are, are fun people, I've decided. So, yes. Great fun. And I guess it must be interesting for you to hear what succeeds around the country. 
Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, <laughs> sometimes we just get a, a, a very brief email. I had one the other day and all it said was, Woohoo! You Seasgate people rock. My Eremurus are up, and that's all I needed to know. Brilliant, brilliant, fantastic, fantastic. She just, she was so excited. She just had to send us uh, the email. And how many different varieties do you have, Meryl? Over five hundred. They're wow. not. They're not all necessarily on the website at one time because. Yep. Unfortunately, you just can't call up new seeds when you want them. You know, they, they crop yep. usually in the late summer or the autumn and once they're gone, they're gone until next year. But, uh, yeah, when, when, we're at, when everybody's running, at, at the moment, last count a couple of days ago, it was 526. That's crazy. So wow. tell me of the process. So obviously, you have to grow all the plants. So where do you grow them? Do they get yeah. damaged, etc.? Well, we... we Fell on our feet really with this because, well, we've, dare I say it, we've been creating our garden and and changing it every year for the last 40 years. And so because we were passionately interested in perennials and unusual plants, uh, we had them in the garden. So, yeah, we've got a lot of stuff we can gather from our own garden from established plants. But uh, we also import from professional seed growers overseas. Uh, I have to say at enormous expense to the management because of Australia's quite right, very strict quarantine and inspection rules. Um, But some things you do need to have completely isolated to get seed that will come true to type. And, of course, there's new things that are being developed um, and bred overseas all the time, and we're in communication with with that field, and so we do also import some things, largely from Germany, and uh, Holland, Japan, and America. Mm-hmm. So, and they're all places that have, uh, you know, can really satisfy the Australian quarantine requirements as to the the quality of of that. Um, and it's all laboratory tested. It's phy- it has a phytosanitary certificate before it leaves its country of origin, and then it's hand inspected by our quarantine guys at the Australian border before it comes to us. So it's a lengthy process and very expensive. But don't tell my husband because <laughs> <laughs> we won't. No, no, it's just our little secret. But what gardener can resist something absolutely luscious, new, glorious? Never seen it before. Never had that colour before. Of course, you've got to have it. It's what gardening's about. Absolutely. <laughs> it's fascinating here. You talk about the like the quarantine process is such a strict and needs yes. to be, which is amazing. Like my. So I reflect on my um, heritage. My parents and my uncle and my grandfather were seeds people. Yes. Um, and it was uh, vegetable. So you, Seed, yep. You know, it's an amazing thing. Predominantly collie and cauliflower, cauliflower and cabbage um, were the main crops they did, but definitely the cauliflower, but they did carrots. Um, and when you stop and think it takes, like, the seed is such a small component and to have a bag of seed yes. takes a phenomenal amount of crop. Exactly. To get that quantity. But they would, this is going back uh, quite a few decades now, and they would actually send them overseas during the war period. Yes. Because obviously in the UK and Europe, they they weren't producing. Yes. 
So when you think, like, and that would just be, you know, I've got the old stencil that's used to be stenciled on the side that said seeds, wells and, and sun or whatever it was. How on wonderful. But a completely different process for seed movement yeah. back They'd... then compared to now. And so it's really fascinating to hear what you're saying about that change and the necessity for that and what the implications are if we don't do it, obviously, mm. is the other flow on from that. Oh, the, the implications if we don't do it are huge. I mean, yes, I, I rail against the cost, but it, oh, yeah, that, that's it's absolutely necessary. Yeah. We have to do it because there's so many nasties out, out there. You only have to look at the devastation of things um, in, in Europe, in Britain, in, in the United States because there's been such free movement of An plant movement, material. Yeah. I mean, seed is much lower risk than, than live plants. Yes. Um, but nevertheless, there are risks associated with seed, so it must not, 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 not be brought in, you know, without the proper... Following the process and enjoying the, the beauty oh, of the plant at the end. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Yes. So That's it, well worth it. Is your garden uh, covered in stockings? Yeah. <laughs> Certain times of the year. Bags and stockings and Yeah, bags. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Little would, insect proof bags. That would be quite a uh, fascinating floral picture of, of the garden. Well, we, we don't open the garden at <laughs> no, that no. stage. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. All right. We'll get to a few more questions now. So Bethany in Nunawading has said, hello, panel, love your work. I found someone near me. Um, who is selling pepino melon plant. I'm keen to have a grow a go at growing one for myself from a cutting. Am I wasting my time doing it now when the days are shortest? Should I be waiting for spring? Yes. <laughs> yes, we're all nodding in agreement. Wait for spring. It is um, in the tomato family, in the Solanaceae family, and, uh, I mean, you might nurture it through winter if you had it indoors and... little hothouse. Yeah, a little hothouse. Spring. But, yeah, definitely spring. I mean, the pepinos do grow very well from cuttings, uh, but I, I think, yeah, maybe I wait just, for spring. Yes. Although the price might go up then. <laughs> they might be cheaper now in winter. <laughs> I mean, it's always worth a shot, isn't it? If if they are quite cheap, just get one, put it in a pot inside and somewhere sunny. And yes, yeah, yep. definitely, definitely worth kitchen window sill. Yeah, and then it'll be ready to go outside once spring comes. Yes, you know, have a yeah. And so inside or a little hot house kind of scenario that keeps it. Yes, frost free is the main free thing. And warm. Yep. All right. So another question from Charlotte. Uh, Steve Wells mentioned his corner near the house that gets no sun in winter and he has stopped with the veggies. What is suggested plant-wise for a spot like that? So would that be for veggies or for non-veggies? Mm, thinking non-veggies. Yep. So for me... Plenty, that, really, yeah. isn't there? Mm. Um, so yes, endless options, um, depending on what your interest is. So, I, so for me, some of those spots that get a bit of sun, but then shade, um, some of my clivias actually cope with that. Yes. They get the morning sun and that's okay, but then the rest of the shade, so they don't get scorched. Yep. Um, so you, things like that work really well. Um, hellebores are a good suggestion. Yes, hellebores would be great. And, and you've got the winter color with the winter 
flowers. Yep. And and the foliage is really quite handsome. They're they're nice plants Such all year beautiful. round. Yeah, there's a lot of array of foliage. With yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many. I mean, it, from a native point of view, you've got your corriers, of course, which yep. are yes. an absolute no-brainer for those yes. dry, shady spots. Yes. Dianellas. Dianellas, fantastic. Lassiopetalums, fantastic. Yep. There's yeah, there's a bunch of. I mean, when Lady you think Violet. about it, plants grow under trees all over the world. Yes. So yes. there's absolutely heaps of native violets would be great as I well. I was about to say violas or, yep. or violets, yep. which are a very big family. There's lots of yummy ones to choose from, from fragrant ones or uh, ones with all sorts of decorative foliage, very low ones, taller yep. ones, ones that are good for cut flowers and perfume. There's a big range from native ones to... Uh, exotics in the viola family. Yeah, absolutely. So heaps. Yes. Plenty to grow. Go to the shade loving yeah. bench at yes. your local nursery um, and have a chat with the good the, the good staff there and go, right. Yeah, depending on what how big work. an area. Yeah. No, Take that, some photos. That's the other thing I always. Um, if you're going to ask people um, at, at a nursery, I was often saying, take a photo of whatever you're wanting to, an area or plants that you're interested. That'll help. And and go visit gardens. Uh, Victoria's Open Garden Scheme are doing a grand job and opening some fantastic gardens of a huge diversity from little Correct. ones to big ones. And there's certainly going to be some that are quite heavily shaded gardens. We went to visit one down in Gippsland mm-hmm. uh, a few weeks ago, sort of at the peak of autumn. And it was an extremely shady garden because the whole plot which uh, was on the banks of, of a quite a strong flowing creek, um, had been planted with trees over many decades. So it was a very heavily shaded garden. It was sensationally beautiful yeah. and, you know, Sen- uh, so, so yeah. many plants to see. And as you say, photograph, ask questions. Yep. And people who are opening their gardens and the volunteers that are helping them, they love to talk and, you Correct. know, it's a big, beautiful weekend. Well, I can't, you yeah, know, resonates so well to go and visit gardens, whatever they may be, whether that's um, private gardens and open garden scheme, which is brilliant because people are generously opening, whether it's your local park, whether it's the local botanic gardens. Um, One of the things I, you know, one of the things I loved doing and valued doing when I was studying my horticulture course was to go to places like the botanic gardens. Yes. Because you're learning plants and you've got your plant list and also you're learning aspect and all those things about mm. gardens and spaces. But you're looking at them and you can you can learn by rote and by picture and by identifying elements of leaf, flower, fruit. But to see a garden and to see a plant in a garden at maturity yes, and go, ah, oh, so that's what you grow like. Mm, that's how you um, – what you become. Um, if, so if then if you're knowing about plants and then learning about designing gardens or creating spaces – you get a, such a great great insight yes. into how thing how gardens and plants fit together, fit together yep. and what goes together and oh there's a shady spot oh okay right what plants are in that palette what's in that area so and yeah, then you can put thing. your local nursery person on their metal to find it for you which yeah. is very doable these days with Correct. the, the they'll, internet they'll track, things down. they'll track it down rather than just accepting you know what what's dished up yep. on the shelf, which is often the thing that's quick and easy to grow. And transportable. Transportable and looks yep. good little in a pot. Yep. 
which doesn't necessarily resemble what it looks like when it's a fully grown specimen. Yes. So working the other way around, finding the plants first and then asking the nursery person to find, you know, get them for you or get them yep. yourself, you know, mail order or, or whatever. Um, that's a good way to work, I've always found. Absolutely. Start with the plant. One yep. of my favourite plants fits that category of it doesn't work well in a nursery pot because it's a bit fragile. It's the purple hearts and the Secracia pallida. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just fragile. Yeah. But foliage-wise, it's this beautiful purple foliage. Um, it has a little nice little pink flower. Um, if it gets too big in a pot, it'll just break off. So you don't often see it in a nursery. Yeah. have occasionally come across them, but only in small pots because they just don't travel well. They don't sit well. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the garden... They look stunning, and I think I first came across them seeing them at the Botanic Gardens. They're beautiful, as I said, beautiful purple. They were planted next to some agaves. They had a really nice combination. And I was like, oh, wow, I like that plant. I want that plant. And so, often with the Botanic Gardens, you can check out, I know certainly in Sydney and Melbourne, the, the friends groups grow a lot of the plants that are in the gardens. Oh, so yes, that's right. Eye, wait yep. for their sales. And, yeah, uh, and likewise. Line up early, get in there. <laughs> it's like the Fernie Creek Horticultural Society. They have a very active growing yep. group and they are propagating and, and growing all sorts of unusual things which they present at their, on their stand at their annual um, Fernie Creek Horticultural Society plant fair and I know from personal experience that people travel from New South Wales wow. and we even had one lady from southern Queensland who'd driven down specially for that event Gosh, because they said well we're, we're I can't get anything lovely. like this at home <laughs> I have a lovely holiday it's a great way to do it that's, that's a dedicated gardener yep. that is a good Gotta gardener love a dedicated gardener yep absolutely <laughs> Oh, well, this is the 3CR Gardening Show. I'm A.B. Bishop um, in the studio with Stephen Wells and Meryl Johnson. If you'd like to talk to us on air, you can call us on 94190155. Or if you have a question you'd just like to text through, the number is 0488809855. So I should get to some more questions and comments that are coming in on the text line. Uh, good morning. Loving the conversation this morning. Aconite. Please ask Meryl to elaborate on that plant that deer don't like. Thanks, Susie. (laughs) No worries, Susie. Happily, because it's such a beautiful plant. But it does come with a warning. It is very poisonous. So it's aconitum is the botanical name. How it grows, it's a perennial and it is a, a virtually herbaceous perennial. So herbaceous means it dies down in the winter. Not all perennials are herbaceous. Lots of perennials are evergreen. But the aconitum, or aconite, to give it its common name, does die down in the winter. It's not vanished because it stays as a carpet of very low leaves. And then in the spring, the spires start to come up. They reach quite tall um, stature over the summer and then bless them they are just about the last things in the garden to flower and boy are they spectacular you can get them in a range of colors but their forte are pure piercing beautiful blues deep blues sky blues mid blues 
boy, are they spectacular. So the common, other common name are monk's hoods because each flower in the spire is shaped like an, an old monk's cowl, but they're, they're packed into dense packed spires and they bloom from mid-autumn on into early winter. Now, the honey-eating birds don't get poison, so clearly the, uh, the plant has very cunningly preserved all its poisonous compounds from going into its nectar because the bees, the pollinators, the honey-eating birds, our garden has lots of honey-eating birds, and they just work those aconite heads because there's nothing else flowering that late in, in the season or little else about, so they really work them. Spectacular things, wonderful cut flowers, but I have to warn everyone, all parts of the plant are poisonous, but particularly the sap. So when you're cutting them back, should you decide to cut them back, or you're dividing them, propagating them, make sure you wear um, rubber gloves. That's all it needs. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, lots of people get in a frenzy about having poisonous plants in their garden. If only they knew how many plants (laughs) we commonly grow in our gardens were poisonous, perhaps they wouldn't get quite so agitated. Because of the taste of these things, you know, a toddler is not going to munch their way through a bucket load of it because they they don't taste nice. They taste really awful. And that's what puts the toddlers and the kangaroos and the, the uh, all the other nasty munchers off. So they are one plant that's immune to munchers. Very spectacular. Oh, I have a big clump of it outside my kitchen window. And when it flowers in that late autumn period with this piercing blue against the golden tones of the cherry tree, I tell you, it is sensational. Stunning. Mm, Great plant. Very good. That was a lovely roundup of aconite. (laughs) It wasn't the plant I was thinking of. Yeah, when it comes to perennials, um, yeah, certainly not there. Well, it was very popular in Elizabethan times, that Mm -hmm. is Elizabeth I in, in Britain, not the second. Although maybe it was, I don't know, but certainly very popular um, in in the time of Elizabeth I. And uh, there's yeah, fairly good historical evidence that if not her, at least her sort of chief minister, Cecil, bumped a few political <laughs> opponents right. off by popping some ap- aconite juice into their wine. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and no, it was a very popular. It was actually a medicinal plant. If handled properly in, in limited doses, it could do good things medicinally, mm-hmm. apparently. But if administered in good quantity, it could bump them right off. Oh, goodness. Now, Meryl, you've, got, you've brought in some plants, and we're going to come to them in a minute, but I just wanted to say that uh, Tonkin's Bulbs has uh, just put their winter list up online. So if you're yes. looking for some unusual bulbs, yes. Um, yes, Jane has just mentioned that the winter list is up. So that's tonkinsbulbs.com.au. So hop on and uh, get yourself something unusual. Top quality bulbs. Yeah. So what have you brought in? Ah, well, I'm really interested in plants that attract pollinators because I think that's that's one way that gardeners can do their bit because all of our pollinators, I mean, people yeah know about bees, but there's lots of other things that do pollination, butterflies and moths and flies and little insects that we don't even know the name of. 
so many things are pollinators and they're almost the invisible workforce. But boy, would we notice if they stopped doing their job. And truth is, they are stopping doing their job because they're dwindling in numbers alarmingly quickly. Um, Bees have the high profile, high publicity profile, but the other pollinators are just as important. So I'm really gung-ho about plants that feed and attract and nurture pollinators. So I've actually brought some agastache, um, which are... One of my favourite plants at the moment. I get plant passions. I don't know about you, Stephen, but I yes. get passionate about plants. And at the moment, it's the agastache. They're sometimes called mints, and that's a terrible misnomer because they're not even related. They're, they're not mints at all, and they certainly don't behave like mints. They're, they're not spreaders at all. They just stay as a nice little bushy shrub. But their joy is they have funnel-shaped flowers, which the pollinators adore, they bloom for month after month after month. So they're a permanent food source for the pollinators. But they're also a food source for us because my other passion at the moment is unusual edibles. So these little guys, the, the agastache, are perfectly edible, deliciously edible for humans. So you eat the flowers and they're brilliantly coloured, come in a range of colours from purple, blues, soft blues, yellows, whites, apricots, peaches, raspberry. There's just a a huge range of colours in the flowers. They're very showy. So they're a great, um, you know, garden benefit for the soul because Mm -hmm. you're enjoying that colour for for months on end as well as the pollinators. Good cut flowers. But both the flowers and the foliage are edible. And often the flowers have a different flavour to what the foliage has. They're highly aromatic, so our our nasty chewing critters are unlikely to to attack. Uh, They have a a range of flavours, so different ones have different flavours. It can be aniseed, it can be like licorice, it can be like fruit, citrusy, all minty, all different sorts of flavours. So you can, you know, pick the flavour that you need for the the fruit salad. So you do use them in cooking, use them in cakes, in desserts, in fruit salads, in fresh salads, use the flowers as colourful garnish or a colourful addition to a salad. So you can really brighten up the the colour of fresh green salads. But I actually grow them in pots now Mm -hmm. around our veggie plot. Yes. Uh, because, well, they're still in flower at the moment and they, they start blooming. Well, they're, they're virtually not off duty. There'll be a few winter flowers, but I cut mine back in the winter mm-hmm. to generate a whole new stack of fresh flowers sort of in the early times of spring. And then they just go through. They're still blooming at the moment and still feeding my dear little pollinators who are doing their best with my cabbages and cauliflowers at the moment. (laughs) Um, So they're, I think, a fabulous family and very easy to grow. They don't require a lot of water. They do best a little bit lean and mean, so you you don't want to overfeed them because if you keep them on a fairly lean diet, so excellent in pots as well as the garden, um, they're going to bloom even more and, and grow more prolifically. So if you've got them in pots, because yeah. I have a, f- a strong feeling that the, po- the the plants I was talking about before that I bought and had outside my window were agastache. Yes. Um, and I have cut them back, but I'm interested now to know what size pots you've planted them in. Ah, yes. I have them in pots because I have a bit of a pot plant 
yeah. culture, and that was a bit of the thought that I had thought about having them. Yes. Um, well, because so what size? You can, they'll grow to the size of the pot that you've got, really, okay. yep. because they, they, they don't spread. They don't have any runners, but they're, they're long-term perennials. They're not going to run away on you. Um, they're, they're with you for many years, and, and they don't have any runners. So they'll just gently spread year after year out to the side of the pot dimension that you've chosen. So I have them, I work in the... I'm an old nursery person. <laughs> I work in the old money. So I, I have them in 10 or 12-inch diameter pots. Yep. But I've also got some in just 8-inch diameter pots. So smaller pots. Yeah, okay. yep. um, smaller growing. And, again, that's a lovely thing. You can have really tall ones or you can have really quite compact ones. Uh, so you can tune it up to the size of the pot that you wish to have. But boy, are they, they good value all around the edge of the, the veggie garden in the pots. Yeah, great. Excellent. Sounds fantastic. All right, we've got another question uh, coming from Pete. Uh, I'm building a new home in Mount Martha. I purchased 18 teddy bear magnolias two years ago to grow on and plant as a hedge. They are currently about two to two and a half metres high in pots. I want to plant them in the spring when the house is finished. What width should I plant them apart and how should I boost the soil as it's very sandy? Yes, the sandy soil is going to have to be addressed first, isn't it, Stephen, before we put the magnolias in? Yeah, I was thinking that. So feed the soil, they'll they'll need some good, a good foundation, so good fertiliser. Build up the soil profile with some. If it's just those, then you can they'll cope with um, good quantities of fertilizer in the sense of being in the sandy soil. There won't be much nutrients. Nutrients substance. left in it. Yeah. Um, Want to get a lot of organic matter. Yeah, in. a good lot of organic yeah. matter. Pile in the organic matter yeah. now. Yeah. Um, do that first, and if you need to um, wait until the building works are done before you can get in to do that then do that first, wait a little while, a few weeks before planting so that it's not a much of, as much of a shock to the, mm. to the roots of the, the potted plants, the teddy bears, um, and then keep up the moisture in the first, well, I would say probably the first year yeah, yeah. Uh, at least. Um, and it's actually really good from a watering point of view. So if you're planting, just I know we all do it, but just a reminder, it's good to create the well um, at the base of the planting yes. because um, often when we water, we think we put a little bit of water on but don't realise that that plant that's been in a pot for a long time has been used to being getting water. So that root ball needs to get moisture in all the way through rather than just putting a wa- bit of water on top and going, yep, that'll soak down. You don't know because you can't get in. But to create a good well, that then you can do a good soak of water and that drains through and keeps that root ball moist as well yep so by well you mean once the plant's gone in and you plant it just create a little wall around the outside right. so yep. that it actually holds the water yep. and let yep. it, lets little it basin. soak through yep yep but for the long-term success of the teddy bears i think the work now of piling in the organic matter and just lay your hands on anything you can yep. Yep. because sandy soil is very free draining which a lot of plants like and of course your teddy bears are going to like the free draining but they also like a much more retentive soil that's going to hold the moisture and hold the nutrients better so if you can get some old straw some manure some old leaves anything that's organic that you can lay your hands on now 
and a little bit of hard work, given that you're going to plant this spring, I think it would be really good to dig it in now yeah. um, rather than just sitting it on the top. That's okay Definitely. if it's a long-term yeah. project, but because these are going to get planted this spring, I think you need to get it right down as deep as you can mix through. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, it will be an ongoing process. Anyone with sandy soil knows that the nutrients leach through pretty quickly. So every year you're going to be putting on compost. Um, And in terms of spacing, uh, you know, it really does depend, I suppose, on – um, it sort of sounds like you may be trying to create a bit of a hedge, a bit of a screen, screen. there. So, I mean, you could go as close as even two metres. Yes. Um, and, and and anything, yeah, up to sort of five, I suppose, metres wide, yeah. depending on... How thick you want that screen want to screen. be. Yeah. Yeah. If they're wanting to treat them a bit of, as a hedge, yeah, two metres, maybe even less. Yeah. Oh, yeah, maybe even a metre and a half if you want it to be really, really dense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And I was going to suggest too, at now, adding some organic life or similar product. There's lot, many different products out there under different names. But what you're basically looking for is an organic um, palletised style fertiliser that you can get in with that organic matter now. Yeah. yeah because that helps to nurture the microbes in the soil and get them all busy and active before you're planting in spring. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I'd probably add a little bit of liquid fertiliser in that post-transplant mm-hmm. Absolutely. routine. Yeah. Yep. Just to give them that immediate fix. Certainly some seaweed or fishy product. Yep. Um, water them in with that. And you might like to put them on a, a little bit of a nurturing diet when they're first planted and <laughs> give, yeah, give them that every 10 days Extra to two TLC. weeks just to pour it all over the, the, uh, the plant itself and the ground because they will, they'll take that, take that on board through their leaves as well as their roots. And it's not a fertilizer. It's more like a blood tonic that mm-hmm. helps their hormones to settle down after the, <laughs> Definitely. the yeah. transplant. Absolutely. Now, um, Meryl, Susie has um, sent us a text. Do you have any plans to open your garden? I visited once a few years ago and it was so beautiful and memorable. I would love to see it again and take a friend who hasn't seen it. Ah, what a lovely question. How nice of you. Thank you. Uh, Yes, we do. This spring, um, we're not open to the public all year round, although we do accept, you know, like-minded groups like garden clubs, etc., um, on a private basis by appointment. But there, in West Gippsland, there's a garden festival called Gardavalia. So Gardi, V-A-L-I-A, Gardavalia. They have a website. And it's been in abeyance since the beginning of COVID for obvious reasons, but they're hot to trot this spring. So we always open our garden in association with Gardevalia because it helps to raise money for local charities like our hospital, etc., our, our CFA, all sorts of good good people. Um, but we open for longer than the Gardevalia period. We sort of use the Gardevalia festival, which is usually only two weekends as the centre point, but we're open weekdays and sort of for a week before and, and a bit after as well. So basically from mid-October until the end of the Cup Day weekend, we'll have the garden open to the public this year for the first time since before COVID. 
Wonderful. And, and about 20 other gardens in the district as well with the Gardevalia Festival. So, yeah, you can really make a good weekend of it. Fantastic. And someone's just said they're looking at your Seedscapes website now and there's great photos and descriptions. Ah, good. So, well done. Glad you enjoy it. <laughs> I have fun doing it, I can tell you. Oh, excellent. Hey, Steve, so what have you been up to in terms of your horticultural therapy or your gardening? Anything yes. going on at work? Uh, yeah, there's some interesting stuff at work. So there's always interesting things at work. Um mm-hmm. But um, we're just finishing off some projects at the moment that are um, focused on some outdoor areas for staff to engage with, mm-hmm. um, which has been great. But one of the things I um, have been enjoying doing is um, restarting some uh, staff wellbeing sessions mm-hmm. that are focused on using or well, connecting with horticulture. Um, so obviously during the last few years, there's been the challenges within our healthcare settings oh, boy. Um, and continues to be um, as you know, hospitals are challenging spots full stop. But um, the, there's been some initiatives that um, we've done at Austin Health for staff um, to support them that are a little bit different than what we would normally do, but are um, sessions for staff to come for an hour step outside of their normal routine of whether that's a clinical setting, um, nursing or allied health, uh, or um, our support staff mm-hmm. um, who are non, for want a better description, non-clinical, but admin or support um, staff. And They're all under terrible pressure. Yeah, yeah. So we, the great thing is we've been doing um, essentially a therapeutic horticulture session, which is um, um, c- connecting with up to eight people in a, in a group session. I get them to come along. They don't know too much about the session before they come, which is great because I like the element of you find out when you come mm-hmm. and you enjoy the immersion. So essentially it's a, a potting up exercise that I do with um, the staff. But prior to that, I start the session off with a five-minute walk in the garden and just get them to have a meander mm-hmm. and to um, focus a little bit on a time to just not... Uh, be caught up in the pressures or the, the the happenings of the day because I often see a lot of people the reason I do that is it starts the session and it gets some trips it's that um, it's essentially that tripping point for mm-hmm. want of a better description or that connection or to, to switch, switch them over, out that's the yeah. word I'm looking for yeah. to switch them out of the the busyness of the day um, it's also a chance for me to say when they've they reflect on it and talk about how what they've seen or felt or observed. They often say that they would walk past a garden but not go into it because they're going from point A to point B um, and don't often stop. And but they reflect on that space and go, oh, I stopped to see this detail in the plant, this fling thing that was flowering, or this element that's in the garden. And I then build on that to actually say, you know, that's a great thing to actually stop and go at any moment in your day it only takes five minutes for you to what you've just shared with me about what what they've experienced in that five minutes that's all it takes for them to actually come and step out of the busyness of their day if they've got that moment because you know often the thought is oh, i haven't got time for that yeah and you go no if you're having a, your, your tea break or your meal break or you need another breakout if you can fit that in it's just that moment to just go i just need to catch my breath i just need to slow my breath i just need to stop and feel the sun i need to sit in, under a tree or whatever it is and five minutes can actually be feel like it's longer so that's why i start off with that but then we move on to a, a potting up 
um, exercise. I use some succulents, largely because they're very tough and resilient and yep. give us a lot of colour and interest and they survive and thrive. So that, that for some instant people... success. <laughs> it is instant success. And the important thing for me in that choice is that often people that come in the group, some are not gardeners at all. Yeah. Some are gardeners and they know that and they launch themselves into the activity. But that potting up uh, is a, a gift for them to take home. So it's theirs to choose what plant they want on the table. Um, and we talk about the process of that. The subtlety is that during that, the conversations are often around, you know, resilience. I, I'm not a counsellor, so I don't talk, I don't delve into that. But it's often the subtlety of talking about spending time in the garden to have a bit of a break or if the indoor if it's a succulent for example and they say oh can I have this indoors and I go yep you can just needs to be in a spot that suits but they're kind of like us they need a break every now and then a bit of a holiday mm. send them outside for a bit of time so the, the subtlety of those kind of conversation aspects um, are really what I want to draw out but for them it's a really positive experience they come at the end of it we do some before and after surveys very briefly but Really good response from people just saying, yep, I'd recommend this. I've, you know, we have a before and after stress rating. So they're always um, a very positive movement to the, yes, I feel less stressed um, uh, end of the scale, which is great. But for me, it's a, a real bringing together of the things that I do in my role. I'm a clin clinician as a nurse, but I'm also then doing uh, the role of the horticultural therapist, but also then oversee the gardens and grounds context and creating of gardens where we can so i draw in all those elements to actually support our staff and say you know i know what it's like on the ward or in the busyness of a day but i also know that the gardens are here for you come and use them have a break in them maybe even do like some reflect on and have shared that they use the garden as their de-stress at the end of the day so they'll yeah. one lady shared with me that you know she uses the time to, at the end of the day, to go the long way to the car park, to go through the garden, yep. to go, this is my defragging, this is my you know, yep. settling down of everything. Before I go Before home. Before I go home and it's a transition. That's a yep. good transition thing to go, good right, thinking. I'm leaving work at work, I'm transitioning the in the in-between space mm -hmm. to go home and be, be me at home and what my life is at home. Yeah. Um, Which is often just as busy and just correct. as challenging. So it's actually, you know, we use that in a very subtle way to, and that session to actually help encourage people to, to have less, to have moments of to de-stress, mm -hmm. but also to look at other things that they're doing in their day, um, or even if it just triggers uh, the thought process around, well, no, I'm not a gardener, but I do this to, to switch off from work, whatever that might be, or. The old so saying really to stop and smell the roses, it's not a silly old saying no. because it's got the two aspects to it, stop and just let your brain catch up a little bit and sort things out by itself. It's pretty good at doing that if you give it the chance. Yep. Um, but also the smelling bit's important because when you smell things, the scent goes immediately to the long-term memory yep. part of your brain. So it often brings back very good memories. You know, I, if I smell certain scents in the garden, I immediately think of my grandmother, and yep. that's, a, that's a happy thing. She was a lovely yeah. – I've had two yep. grandmothers, of course, and they were both lovely ladies. Um, but it, it takes me straight back to them, yeah. and that's a happy thing yep. to do. So, yeah, to stop and smell, taste, touch – 
you know, activate the senses often gives that your brain that chance to sort itself out, doesn't it? It does. And I think, you know, what we don't give that enough credit, um, credit that mm. we actually do need to, to allow ourselves to stop, to slow, to take in. I know, you know, another example, I came across the, the term that people, you walk for creativity, and for me, that is, it just yeah. resonated because I know, you know, in one part of my brain was, oh, I need to walk because I need to do exercise and I need to, um, you know, be active and keep my body mobile, which is true. But then the guilt would come in and go, oh, I haven't been for my walk. But then when I flipped it and went, no, I actually go for walking to switch my brain because. Yeah. And get your breathing patterns you and do, your body rhythms back you in. You think differently, start yeah. to. Re- solve some challenges or issues that are going yeah. on at the time. And if you're going around the garden, the local suburb like I do, you also get the added bonus of seeing what everyone else has got in their Sniffing garden. Their and going, oh, that's looking good. I must put some of that in my garden. Because um, I did that in the drought era, going back, and it was brilliant to go, oh, I know they're not watering their garden. Yeah. And look, it's And still look at living. that one. That's a winner, right? I need, so there's so much that comes from getting connected outside and walking in the garden. A potentially small walk. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Can, make, can make an absolute big difference. All right, well, we have actually uh, have a caller, so let's chat with uh, Sharon from Cheltenham. Good morning, Sharon. Good morning. It's, it's actually quite um, funny what I'm meaning to, to say. I, this is an observation um, which I was quite pleased with. My zucchini finished as usual. And um, I thought, oh, it's nearly time to rip it up. But then I noticed there was a whole lot of ladybirds on it. Ah. And I thought, oh, I don't want to put those in the compost. Then I'll just let it go. And they didn't go, of course, so they're still there. Right. And I thought, well, I'm not needing the spot. I'll, I'll leave them there. But the zucchini plants actually flowered and produced little zucchinis, which is ridiculous. <laughs> um, they haven't got in rot. It, it, I mean, I'm not after the um, vegetable, but I'm just surprised that the little ladybirds have now gone under the leaves. And I read on the internet that they hibernate. Yes, they yes. Cer- they certainly will overwinter. And I'm just wondering if they were attracted to the plants, if there was any aphids on them. Because usually well, this time of year they start declining and the, the pests yeah. tend to move in and then the, yeah. the ladybirds follow to get a meal. I didn't see any. It had the usual, um, it's downy mildew, isn't it, the white? Yes, yep. Yeah, which, you know, I get every year. Um, yeah, I was just, um, I'm just quite pleased with this because I'm now popping out every morning. And <laughs> Chatting to your ladybirds, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. No. <laughs> the, the problem is when they start answering back. <laughs> <laughs> and I was trying to work out, are they moving or not? Because... Um, I would have assumed if they're hibernating, they'd be still, wouldn't they? Yeah, they would. They would certainly will slow down, absolutely, yeah. and they, they won't fly away. And that, I mean, it, it's such a um, sort of good point that reminds me now because often time at this time of year we're out there slashing things, we're pruning mm. things down, grasses, and as you say, zucchini plants and mm. that sort of thing. And often there will be uh, insects overwintering or there'll be eggs of uh, butterflies or moths on these plants. Yeah. So kudos to you, Sharon, for actually observing what's going on in the garden 
garden and uh, yeah who cares if you leave leave dead zucchini plants through the winter no and it's That's like awesome. i think it's a great thing that you're doing and and i encourage what ab's just been saying um like echinaceas which are autumn blooming plants spectacular autumn bloomers and then the the cones that are in the center of the ring of petals they're very prominent cones they will turn into seed heads um, which you know dry off through the winter now the temptation is to cut those back at the beginning of of winter or sometime during the winter but don't be too hasty because the little native finches and other seed eating birds really love those it's a feast for them so leave them as long as you possibly can because you're helping out our little neighbors Yes, it's it's quite extraordinary. And to be really honest, in the past I would have ripped everything up and gone yeah. like a bullet a gate, but I've had wrist um, problems, so I've had to do things very slowly. So that, that's been a good thing in some way. I think it has. Yeah, <laughs> well I, done, you. <laughs> I had a similar situation a few years ago, Sharon, where we had grown zucchini plants and I went to pull them out and I saw the little wrens all over them having a oh. great feast. So I left them oh. for about another month and uh, then all the pests died off and the, the wrens had had their feed. And yeah. so, yeah, well done oh. for, for being so observant in the garden. Yes, it was good timing, Um me bringing in when you were discussing more or less the same subject, I thought. <laughs> Absolutely. Excellent. Well, say yeah. hi to your ladybirds for us. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thanks, thanks for calling in, Sharon. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, how absolutely wonderful. Yes. Just, uh, yeah. Can't go, can't go past a ladybird. No. Nope. Um, <laughs> all right. What were you going to say, Stephen? I, I saw one just recently and I posted it, so it's quite interesting. Um I had uh, a moment of observation in the garden and just walking slowly. Mm-hmm. And I've got some cacti and quite spiny cacti. And there on all of the spines was a little ladybird uh-huh. <laughs> traversing its way through. It was moving. It wasn't speared by the, by the spines. <laughs> um, but I was like, wow, not the path that I would have chosen. You know, it got, got me thinking about, you know, sometimes the journeys and things that we go on, are a bit challenging, but, you know, you still yes, come out of them. That's probably what the ladybird was thinking. <laughs> was going, my, my goodness, you've got more skill than I have to be able to traverse through that. A nice spot, <laughs> yeah. yes. So ladybirds yes. are wonderful to spot. They are, yes. yes. All right, well, Max from Thornbury has texted in to say, Hi, I love your show. I have heavy clay soil and continually add compost, manure and mulch. Would it help with growing root vegetables to add sand? Yes. I have access to X sand pit sand from a childcare service. Oh, okay. Um, I'd be washing that sand through before I put it in. Um, yeah, I think it's a fine idea and, and I do the same. We have a lot of our veggies in raised veggie beds, you mm-hmm. know, tank type veggie beds. For, for good drainage and they heat up more quickly in the, the winter and the spring. Uh, and for growing my carrots, we definitely add the sand because they like the the freer going. So absolutely nothing wrong with that. But I would run the hose, uh, you know, get, get the sand into a bucket or some sort of container with some holes in the bottom and just run the hose through it, wash it all out nicely and then add it in. Can't do any harm at all. 
I feel like sometimes if you don't get the right ratio of clay to sand, it can become a gluggy mess. And, of course, it does depend on what sand you're using. I think the sand that you're talking about, Max, should be okay. It won't necessarily turn to rock, but um, you'd certainly want to turn over the clay soil really well first and break it up as much as you can. And maybe add some coarser gravel or bluestone chippings as well just to get some more air into it because that sand's liable to be fairly fine Um, so you can oxygenate your soil if you add some gravel as well you won't do any harm at all you'll just improve the drainage although for root vegetables that might ah, be yes yeah, that could be a problem sorry that, yes that would be a problem especially for carrots yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And, um, of course, get some organic matter in there at the same time. Yes, it sounds like yep. he's doing really well. So, yeah. yeah. That will be a hard job, mixing clay. through mm. sand into clay soil. Very, very tricky. So uh, definitely a winter job, Max. Good exercise. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, what other seeds have you brought in for us today, Meryl? Well, uh, because I'm very keen on things that the pollinators like and also keen on edibles, I added into my mix today some Vitex. And this is a shrub. It's a very beautiful shrub. Hails from the Mediterranean region, so ideally suited for you know, temperate and Mediterranean climate areas of Australia. It's called botanical talk. It's called Vitex agnus castus hyphenated name very important shrub (laughs) but its common name gives the game away it's called monk's pepper and it's a very old medicinal herb from the mediterranean area and i first twigged onto this when i was visiting old monasteries in Italy and France, which are very beautiful areas, historic places, and often have the remnants or indeed restored and nurtured um, monastic gardens. And I kept seeing this same shrub in all of them. It's a shapely thing, a a good-sized shrub, tall shrub, not of tree stature, so ideal for, for most garden sizes where you want perhaps a little bit of shade or a little bit of windbreak feature, blooms very attractively. It's, it's covered in blue long tresses, extremely heat hardy and extremely dry hardy, good drought battler. So I had my eye on this shrub. I thought this is really useful. And then, of course, I started learning about the history of it and found out why it gained its common name of monk's pepper. And by the way, a string of many other common names, but all relating to the same thing. The the plant contains chemical compounds that have effects on human body's hormones. And this plant was always grown in the monastery gardens and administered to the monks in fairly copious quantities, I understand, because it subdued their passions and natural urges, if I can put it so politely. Wow, yes. (laughs) And I thought, oh, that's just an old story, you know. But no, modern science tells us there are chemical compounds in this plant that did indeed perhaps change hormonal structure. But... (laughs) I always have fond visions of the abbot sitting up on the high part of the, you know, the uh, the dining 
hall watching how much <laughs> of the monk's pepper. So they would grind up this plant and it would be placed on the, the tables. It would be used like a pepper and it is spicy. So it is, yep. it is a good, uh, it's a tasty edible. But I guess the, the story is don't take in too much of it. And I guess the abbot's duty was to sit there and watch that well, the monks did indeed eat sufficient quantities of their vitex, of their monk's pepper. I wonder so, if the monks knew. I suspect they did. They were pretty good <laughs> at uh, medicinal plants and, and their usages. But even if you never wanted to use it as a spice or a herb and, and you never wanted to eat it, it is a very handsome shrub and highly recommended for um, Australian gardeners who, who don't want to use too much water and it'll just bask in the heat. It's good in coastal areas as well as yep. inland areas. It's frost hardy. Really, it hasn't got anything against it. Uh, and it takes a shears well. I was talking to Stephen earlier um, so its natural habit is very graceful. It will grow with multiple trunks if you allow it to. And it, so it will form a sort of vase shape naturally and will be well clothed all the way down to the ground. But you can also prune off. You can prune it to a, a single trunk or prune lower branches up so you get a lovely sort of architectural superstructure of multiple stems and then it will naturally form a sort of umbrella shape if you prune up the lower um, branches. So a handsome, decorative and altogether useful shrub. So that's in my unusual edibles I department. Think, I think it's great. I remember we were talking earlier and the reason that stuck in my mind when I saw the, um, the tag and was like, oh, my goodness, because I haven't seen it around uh, much at all in Melbourne Gardens. No. Um, but came across it. Um, in California, in the Napa Valley. Yeah, which is a very, is very dry, dry air, very hot, hot, hot area. Of, yeah. Interesting enough, it felt a bit like Adelaide, South yes. Australia, so yep. that, that high, that dry summer yes. heat. Yep. But was really impressed by the, sh- the, the, the flowers on it. Yes. And the quantity of flowers. And, and, and they the shape last of the bush. a long time. And it was just yep. beautiful. I was like, wow, why have I not seen these before? But. So I'm very excited to see your seed packet there. And it is a really good survivor because, you know, you'll find them growing around old monastery areas. Right, yep. Completely untended now and, you know, doing quite happily all by themselves. So yep. a, a low-maintenance shrub. Do good you size. grow everything that you sell? Just about. Mm-hmm. I have to say we don't have a Vitex mm-hmm. in the garden because – our garden, over the years we were talking about before, um, how gardens change mm-hmm. over the the time. And ours is now a very shady garden. We struggle for full sun areas, which is why we've moved the veggie patch into a, a – we've taken over more territory because it's a full sun area and, and done the raised veggie garden beds in, in that full sun area. So I haven't got room in – my precious full sun areas mm-hmm. for a vitex, but yep. yeah, it's something I do admire. But yes, the answer is mostly we do. Mostly, wow! Yeah. So that's a lot of plants. Yes, yeah, yeah. a, a very plant-rich garden. You know, I, I am the despair of my garden designer friends who like to have great swathes of things. <laughs> to which I reply, "Haven't got room because I need the other four hundred, you know, things." Yeah. Very good. All right. Well, I'd like to very quickly spruik the June issue of Gardening Australia magazine. Just there's a um, – oh, it's 
absolutely fantastic issue. We've got a gorgeous orchid on the cover and uh, Tammy Huynh has got a story in the mag about um, a company in New South Wales called The Orchid Place and they it's a family business and they've been growing and breeding all sorts of orchids for many years and uh, so that's very, very colourful story. We've got a wonderful story by Marcel Nankervis yes. and on uh, bare root fruit plants. Of course, oh. now it's, um, it's it coming up to the time. Season. Yes. Yeah, yes. it is time to start thinking about your bare roots, whether that be ornamentals or edibles and, I mean, everything from rhubarb, strawberries, asparagus to the traditional... Yeah, berries. Berries, fruit, the trees. fruit trees, exactly. So both, um, yeah, ornamentals and fruits, it's time to start thinking about and prepping your soil. And um, I think, I mean, the, really the, the good thing about bare root is uh, it really does increase the amount of plants that you can choose from, essentially, yes. because a lot of them are, are mail-order plants. So you yep. have a good variety to choose from around the country and um, they're generally cheaper, so you can get sort of a more established plant um, sure. for, for a similar price and much easier to move around the gardens. So. And I think they establish better too. Yeah, absolutely. If you prune them, if if you're putting in fruit trees, especially, they will need a good prune. But mm. uh, yeah, so Marcel's got a lovely story in the issue. And Jennifer Stackhouse has got a story on lilacs, which um, are also deciduous and can be planted uh, around now. So she talks all about lilacs. And Judy Horton, such a lovely writer, has got a story about uh, the rain lilies, which are oh, small lilies, which, yeah, which grow all over the country and tend to pop their little heads up when, um, yeah, when you least expect when it. When you least expect it after <laughs> rain. And uh, I've got a story about um, gardening all around Australia because, I mean, I think when you're in a particular climate, you tend to think everyone's in that climate. Yeah. But um, I talk to different people in all the different zones, in the tropical, subtropical, yes. uh, the arid area, the the cold areas. I chatted with um, a chap named Rodney Trower from The Conscious Crop, which is a, a closed-loop small farm near Jindabyne. And uh, he was talking about all the sort of the trials and um, challenges that he faces growing um, all the greens, etc., through winter and what he can actually grow. So that's a, a, I really enjoyed writing that story. It's called Winter Wonderland and it sort of um, opens your eyes up as to what's going on around the country, I suppose. Yeah, there's yep. so many creative gardeners. We're finding that, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so to remind us of the diversity of the country. And the yes. you know the width and breadth is quite diverse. It's quite a incredible, yeah. Things what, that grow at different times. Yeah, yes. what's going on? And um, I chatted to a couple of people up in Darwin, and they were telling me the different fruit plants they were growing. And you, get, you <laughs> tend to get very jealous, but yes. uh, it, it was quite delightful. So anyway, that's the the June issue of the Gardening Australia magazine. So um, excellent with, with an orchid on the cover, which is, seems to be uh, doing very well, and. Uh, I mean, we have just moved into winter, haven't we? We are, yes. yes. So starting, starting to get cool. It was a little bit misty this morning. Yes, misty, and um, I've had a few mornings that have been quite chilly. Yeah. Yes, we've had to some remind frosts. us that the yep. seasons have changed. Yep. Mm-hmm. The year is progressing. Yep. But the frosts are good. They they sort of yeah tune up the soil really. Yep. 
All right, we have another text that's come through, which I will... Um, let's have a look. Um, miss the name. Can you repeat the name of the monochromatic plant? Sorry, folks, oh. we're, we're just looking at this, peering oh, no, at the sorry, screen. Sorry, the, the monastic shrub. The monastic yeah, the, shrub. Okay, the Vitex. So it's V I T E X, Vitex, and then Agnus Castus. So A G N U S hyphen C A S T U S, Vitex Agnus Castus. Um, your local nursery may be able to round some up. But as we were saying earlier, it doesn't seem to be very common in in the Australian nursery industry, sadly, I feel. But we do offer seed of it at Seedscape if you would like to have a look at it. Sounds very good. And what's everyone doing in their gardens at the moment? Oh, gosh. <laughs> For me, leaves. Okay. Oh, <laughs> Compost <Yes>. making <laughs> with yes. lots of big old deciduous trees it's the compost making season so basically rounding them up running over them with the the yes, lawnmower yep. and then taking them away to big piles out the back where they will rot down for as long as necessary but we do like to scatter some of that organic life some organic uh, fertilizer on it and uh, we add a little lime to certain heaps as well, so we know, okay, that's a limey heap, that's an acid heap, but the lime does help the leaves to break down. And uh, also making layers in the compost bins. We've, my husband David built in our veggie garden um, three side-by-side -side compost bins so we can be stacking one, you know, digging one over. And, yeah, so it, it's a little production line of compost. So the leaves are also getting layered into the compost bins with the veggie scraps and some old straw and the rakings from the chook shed and anything you can basically lay your hands on it's good to go in the compost bin. Do you mow any of your leaves? Yeah, we do, yes. Mm -hmm. Mow them up first, which chomps them up a bit. And uh, some we don't put in. You know, there's some really hard leaves yeah, yep. that we don't put in. They They just go away to an area to do their own thing and you know, eventually they will break down. But all the softer leaves are, are all used in compost heaps. Mm -hmm. Sounds busy. What Brilliant. about you, Stephen? What are you up to? Um, well, it's a, mine's a bit of a smaller garden, so my, this time of the year actually it does slow down. I do have some leaves. My um, maples, I've got some maples in pots. Yeah, lovely, um, lovely. So they've dropped their leaves. Um, but on that thought, one of the things I'm planning to do over the winter this year with them is because they're large, quite large pots. Mm -hmm. Um, I haven't probably I've probably been in three years, maybe four, if I lose track of time. Um, they haven't been repotted, mm -hmm. so I, it's one of my jobs this year is to get in and lift them out. A bit of an effort, but to, to repot, yep, give some new potting mix, mm -hmm. um, get them ready for spring. They're doing all right in the pots, and uh, they survive quite well. Um, but I keep looking at me each year and going, oh, I really should repot you because you probably put on some. New shoots and new births. Although so I have heard of the maples and, and even camellias in pots going for decades. Correct. Yeah, no, Without absolutely. being repotted. Yeah. 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 I mean, so I've quite got them incredible. in quite decent-sized pots, probably a good 60-centimetre 
solid pots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so they don't necessarily need it. I haven't needed it for a while, but um, yeah, I just look at them and go, I probably, I know that they're getting root filled. Yep. And I, it's probably time to give them some um, extra soil, potty medium. And what, to, what to we into. put them into, just a, a, a sort of advanced potting mix? Uh, something. Yeah, yep. yep. I always grab potting mix that's got the Australian standard, so you mm-hmm. grab yes, the um, premium. Yeah. Good stuff. The red. And you don't even chicks. have to, if you can't manage to tip them out completely, even a dig around and, yeah, you know, yep. put some extra potting, dig out as much as you can from the top and then... Uh, top up, yep. and and the other beaut thing this time of the year is uh, getting getting all the winter colour annuals happening yes. and planting bulbs. I, I have a passion for miniature daffodils because oh. I can, I find I can mix them in with other things, and the dying down foliage is not such a you know a problem. Not, yep. Doesn't block out other stuff. So miniature daffodils, I'm right into, amongst other bulbs. But bulb planting is big. At the moment, yep. and uh, you know the the sort of good old standby winter colour, the polyanthus and the primulas and things like that. We've we've grown them up. They're now reaching the point of flowering. So popping them around the garden and uh, doing some decorative pots to have by the back door, just to cheer you up on a really gloomy day. Absolutely. Well, people should uh, pop onto Jane Tonkin's site and um, visit have her. Have a look, yes. Look, guys, um, our time has come once again. I'd like to um, say thanks so much to Doug and Matt for producing today. Thanks. And thanks to Liz for doing our socials. Thank you so much to Stephen Wells and Meryl Johnson for your knowledge and um, wonderful chats. Uh, my name is A.B. Bishop, so until next week, thank you very much and bye-bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.